Sound Design. Consider the Fender Twin Reverb. Fender Twin Reverb has only one thing. It reproduces the guitar, and it can ruin the experience for everybody because it's so friggin' loud. Okay? So how does that one, you know, just two 12-inch speakers can outdo our whole giant $100,000 PA? Because it's object device that's only streaming one single channel, and we are reproducing, you know, 32 channels or something. Okay? Sound design. Sound Design Live is produced by Noah Feldman and Nathan Lively in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the home of the world's best online training and sound system tuning that you can do at your own pace from anywhere in the world. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by the Director of System Optimization and Senior Technical Support Specialist Bob McCarthy and Josh Dorn Furman. Bob and Josh, welcome to Sound Design Live. Hi, Nathan. Welcome. Hello, Nathan. Well, we're glad. Well, thanks for welcoming us, I guess. Yeah, happy to be here. (laughs) Okay, so I definitely want to talk to both of you about immersive system design. That's what we're here to talk about. A lot of people sent in questions. It is an exciting or polarizing topic, depending on how you look at it right now. But I hope by the end of today's conversation, you may have some more information about it and you may feel differently about it. We'll see. I may feel differently about it. But... Before we do that, I would like to know from each of you, what was the very first concert you ever attended? Can you remember? Who, whoever can remember first can oh, well, start talking Oh, well, for me, first. that's easy. It was, if you, if you consider a concert at my elementary school gymnasium, uh, that was Charlie Pfeffer and his band, and they played, and I don't give up blank about a greenback dollar, and they literally... <laughs> did that because it was in the Catholic school auditorium so they couldn't say damn and I thought wow this is really cool we're all at this concert together and everybody's cheering and they're playing Peter Paul and Mary songs just like my records and how did I, I didn't even know that such a thing was possible this is really cool oh man that's way better than mine. Mine was a Christian artist of some sort. Uh, I was really involved in the church when I was a kid. And uh, it was, a, I think it was Rebecca St. James, maybe it was like a first Christian concert was like what I did first. And then you were both steeped in religion from a young age. Y- yes, yes. <laughs> I grew up in Louisiana and then moved to Texas. So. The thing about my first concert was it was people that I knew that I and I you know went to school with their younger brothers. So it was like real people. So that that set the seed in me that real people can play music for an audience, and that was like okay, this is awesome. I want to be part of this. And there's there you go, right there. Then of course my that's first, interesting. Yeah, for go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. My first big rock show was Grand Funk Railroad. Oh yeah, I'm your captain. Um, I, I'm glad you pointed that out because I think it seems like a magic trick for a long time, right? There's like these magic things that are happening on stage that are making us feel feelings and. And, you know, it's, it kind of seems distant. We even, like, we put the artists up higher, like, we're down lower, we're, like, disconnected from them in a way. So when you start to meet those people and see that they were once like you and also knew, maybe knew nothing about music or how to play music or audio or physics or anything, and then they learn that stuff, then, yeah, your brains you start to see, like, oh, maybe I can get involved. 
Yeah, totally. I um I also got into theater really young as, you know, I remember watching shows and, you know, just at high school productions and being in elementary school and going to go see, you know, Anne Frank or whatever. And it was funny. We saw Anne Frank in Lafayette, Louisiana at the, the big performing arts center. And at the end of the show, we got on the school buses and the person playing Anne Frank was smoking a cigarette outside and it totally like <laughs> ruined the, uh, the the magic and the spectacle. And that was probably the first memory I have of, oh, this is, you know, this is something that people actually do that are human beings. It's very interesting. Yeah. There's a person inside that mouse costume. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, another another seminal event like that for me was when John Huntington wrote his book on uh, control show protocols. networks and control systems. Exactly, yeah. and it's like I had known John for ten years, and it's like, well, gee whiz, if John Huntington can write a book, I can write a book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, seriously, it was that it was that much of a doing on the head, and that was a big piece of pushing me forward to write a book. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it's really helpful when we see our our colleagues doing something. Like, oh, this person can do it. I can do it. You don't have to be a college professor or, uh, or, you know, have mixed the Beatles albums uh, to write a a book about audio or or to be uh, Harry Olsen, you know? It's like um, you can can write if 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 you've got something to say. Yeah, and I remember when he then went on to self-publish, you know, a future edition. So, so he's been a good uh, role model for a lot of us who want to like publish some stuff. Exactly. So, Josh, when are you coming out with your book? Uh, oh man, I wrote a thesis <laughs> for graduate school on, while I was on tour, and that was the uh, that was hard enough. And that was about fifty seventy five pages, and it's on restaurant sound design. So. It was a great excuse to tour around the country and eat at great restaurants and talk about noise and how to, you know, elevate the dining experience. So, would you mind sharing a piece of a couple of pieces from that? Like, what was one of your biggest takeaways from looking into a lot of restaurant sound design? Well, yeah. So, noise is the number one complaint in restaurants, right? And um, it's and they over... tend to just make that worse by putting sound into the space. Oh yeah, and you know, it it comes down it's. And we deal with this all of the time in installs, uh, churches, theaters, wherever. But the same thing happens with restaurants. And um, one of the cool things about noise is it sort of activates, at certain SPL, it starts activating your, you know, fight or flight sort of mentality. And they see that as things get louder, the rate of consumption and food and drinking is actually goes up. And I think it's somewhere near like 20, 30% in some of the studies I was looking at. Oh, so that's um, actually good for the bottom yeah, line. Yeah. So imagine something like a Chipotle. People are stressed out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why you go into a Chipotle and it's just concrete walls and glass everywhere. Really? They did they that on purpose? Partially. I don't know. That's, you know, you can walk into these fast casual restaurants and that's the architecture. And then that architecture trend is carried over. And so there's all sort of synesthetic, synesthesia type research going on on how frequencies affect taste and all sorts of different things. It was very, it was a very interesting thesis. Uh, I went to grad school at UC Irvine in California and for sound design for theater. But, but yeah, I was very interested in that 
And then I got to, it sort of all came together list right before the pandemic at a restaurant called Verse Restaurant in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, Manny Mariquin, who owns Larrabee Studios, f- very famous mix engineer, took over a restaurant space right next to his recording studio. And we put a constellation system in there for full acoustics. Uh, we put a, we, you can use Space Map Go, and you can also have PA. There's a X40 system of PA on sticks. And cool. um, they, it's basically my thesis in a restaurant and it actually exists now (laughs) and they actually have a fiber line connecting to the recording studio and the rt time of the room is like 0.5 so it's like a studio inside the restaurant and we adjust the acoustics for whatever bands are playing and then we also use a constellation technology that allows us to um we call it voice masking so we can sort of isolate the tables and make them you know that way you're having a nice conversation with someone and you don't have to yell across the room or hear other people conversations so i feel yeah. like we could we should have a whole <laughs> we should do a whole other podcast on this because now i'm wondering like i was thinking that i can you know sort of pitch customers and clients on my work and on sound systems in general by saying hey the better the sound the more money you'll make but it sounds like that's not always true so really that we should make the sound worse to help them make more money but then their their customers are also going to be stressed out like where's the it's- connection there yeah i think it's you know it depends on the goal of the restaurant it's like a good you know system design what are your goals and what are you trying to accomplish i mean and then physics gets involved as well everyone will love a better acoustic up into a certain point of a room if your room sounds too dead and you don't energize it with reverb and it sounds like a almost anechoic or like a, you walk into a cinema and you're eating that's not a good dining experience but if it's got like you know a little bit of an uplift to where it elevates, you know, and it has a little bit longer of a reverb time and more early reflections, then you have an energetic room. The problem with restaurants is you have too much reflections. You have so much hard surfaces, so many things. And then you have people that start trying to talk over each other. Got it. And they, it just creates white noise. So yeah, it, there's, there is a balance and you have to find it. Architects, that's the job of the architect and acoustician. The cool thing about Constellation is you can build a dead room and then we can make the room whatever you want it to be and change it at the push of a button. So you can do the tables when people are dining and then at the push of a button when the band gets on stage, it now can be a concert hall or you know a theater or, or whatever you want it to be. And Bob, would you agree that there is this balance where it's like, the sound needs to be good enough in a commercial or restaurant space so that you feel safe and you want to stay there, but but then not so dead, I guess, that you're not interested in being there and you don't want to, like, I guess, drink and eat? Is that Have you seen that in the wild? Well, I think that if a restaurant has overly absorptive acoustics, which is so rare, I can... You know, it's like, where do you find that? Maybe in the old school... The, super the 80s? Old, well, the super <laughs> yeah. old school steakhouse with the, you know, the furry uh, booths kind of thing. So if it's really, really dead, you've, you've created an environment that's very, you know, you better have people far apart. Because if it's if it's acoustically dead and people are close, then you're literally hearing everything exactly clearly that everybody else is saying. So the dead restaurant and the booth, those sort of go together because you got separation then. But what I find is that you have this situation where as the background noise that tries to fill up that void of making people feel like they are, 
not alone that the place is alive. But uh, some of these places will have these sensor mechanisms that raise the background music to make sure that it's over the talking. And that's, of course, in my mind, a reverse. It should go down. If the place is already so full of people talking and have a good time, don't send the music up because they're already having a good time. Just bring that thing down and de-escalate so that then people don't have to have the shouting experience and the what and the what and the, that feeling where you're, you're with a party of eight and you really are only able to talk to the person on your left or on your right. And that's really awful. I hate that experience. And we're talking about immersive experiences and a restaurant experience is an immersive experience. You, you know, you're surrounded by people. You're dealing with, you know, a various acoustics in the room. Verse Restaurant in L.A. and a couple other restaurants have a ton of speakers and they do a lot of other crazy things with it. But the experience of being surrounded and experiencing what's happening in the restaurant is is key. And so we do things like we'll lay, raise the acoustic and make it a little more vibrant and energetic in the bar area. and we'll, So it'll be more vibrant by the bar. And then the rest of the restaurant will be a little more quiet, less reverb, so that people can have a better conversation. And you can sculpt all of this with the technology uh, constellation. But um, so that's one of the many tools of immersive audio. And I think like reverb and, you know, reverberation and room acoustics is a is a side of immersive audio that people are starting to get into more and more. But then you have the other side, which is more theatrical of, you know, s- speakers across the stage, speakers all around you, uh, moving sounds around and doing things like that. And so what is immersive audio? I mean, it's, that's a big question to me. It's a, a marketing term, uh, you know, and whatever term you use it, whether it's hyper real, immersive, or whatever, the, it all goes into the same bucket of it's an experience for people live and in in the real world. So, so for me, the ultimate restaurant plus immersive auto experience has got to be Chuck E. Cheese, man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the image to those, you know, to those. Games. Animatronic uh, cheese balls. I mean, uh, on the stage there, you are so so in it. There's no windows. Everything's it's just a warehouse. Everything's blacked out. So you're yeah. It's a it's just this experience they've created. <laughs> That's probably my first concert experience. Actually, <laughs> robots at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> Okay, Josh, uh, thank you very much. You're a great co-host. We needed a transition into immersive from restaurants into immersive. And the first thing we need to talk about is sort of the, the tough stuff because there are a lot of people listening right now, like me, who are thinking, when is this fad going away? When, why do I need to care about this? And those people who are like me typically try to ignore things until it's something they have to know tomorrow. So like, I'm not going to look up the directions to the airport until I have a ticket to leave tomorrow. And so I've been ignoring all this stuff about immersive for years. So a couple of years ago, I was in Orlando for the name of a conference I can't remember. And everyone was showing off their immersive systems. And I thought, this is really fun. But I don't need to worry about it because this will never be a part of my life because it's so escalated in terms of complexity and expense that that's just never, I'm never going to work on something like that. Fast forward to this year's Live Sound Summit, and we've got Robert Scoville presenting about why he thinks immersive systems are so cool, why he's trying to pitch them to producers, event producers for tours that he has coming up. And it, it turned into kind of this polarizing thing where we had 
it felt like we had people who, you know, had drunk in the Kool-Aid and were on this side of the fence and were like, this is so cool. And, and then people who, like me, who are still kind of on the other side of the fence or on the fence and are like, but wait, is this just marketers trying to sell me more speakers? So yeah. we're mm-hmm. all friends here. So I, I know you guys don't take any offense to me saying things like that, but I feel like we kind of need to go through this conversation before we get into some more of like the fun system design stuff. So I, I wanted to give you each of you a chance to say, I guess I want to give each of you a chance to say what excites you about this idea of immersive sound, what we can do to sort of allay people's fears, what can we do to take the fear away that this is something that is, that is going to be forced on people? Is that a weird thing yeah. to say? <laughs> no, I know. I, I totally, I'm there with you, man. And I was there with you up until about two years ago. And yeah, what, what's interesting is from a, our company's perspective, we've been doing immersive audio for 30 years. One of the first products John Meyer made was a subwoofer for the touring production of Apocalypse Now in Quadraphonic. That was, you know, the first. So Cinema World's been doing it for a long time. Theatrical sound designers have been doing it for years and years and years. And so this live audio world where we have a stereo environment and now we're moving into something different uh, or even a mixed mono environment, it's, it's scary. And I think people have every right to be scared. But before I talk, let's bring it to Bob because he's been working in stereo and mono systems for, you know, all of his career. So... Bob, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am not a immersive evangelist. It's not my role. What, what I do is try to give you guidelines to if you're going to make an immersive system, to make one that's going to work and achieve your goals and not ruin your other goals. So for me, the laws of physics still apply. The laws of human perception still apply. The acoustic realities, interactions, the speakers, all those things still apply. So now you've decided you're going to be immersive. So here's the the way that here's the rules that you have to go by or the guidelines. I more like look, look at them as guidelines than rules because nobody wants rules. It's a whole trade of cowboys. And so the what you want to do now is, is if you're going to do this, these are some guidelines to help you succeed. So to me, I go back to the easiest thing to think of, okay? If we're going to make um, a successful system, the first thing it has to be is intelligible enough for people to understand the material. In the world of theater, they have to understand the words. In the world of house of worship, they have to understand the words. In the words of rock and roll, it's pretty helpful to understand the words, although... Uh, you know, a lot of times it's not sung with the kind of clarity and that, you know, you can, you can, you can bend on that. But it is, it is really helpful to have that. There's no upside to unintelligibility. But if you look at um, why we go and we don't have center, mono-center clusters all around the world doing all of our shows, it's because intelligibility isn't the only thing. We're willing to give up some of that perfection and the, you know, the absolute bestness of that approach in order to get some horizontal spread. And I think a big piece of it is that most people are born with two ears, two functioning ears, and you want to hear a horizontal panoramic spread because that tickles your brain in a really 
positive and engaging way to have things spread over her horizon. So left and right is here to stay. It's not going away. And people are willing to give up perfection and intelligibility to get that horizontal experience. So then it brings you to the next big like chunk, going to three channels, L, C, and R. The world of cinema crossed that road a long time ago, and they they were very troubled by, if you just go left and right, that as soon as you're one seat off the center, that you image to that side, anything that's panned to the center. And it's an insolvable equation, no matter how much somebody tells you they've just invented a new magic filter that time smears and blah, blah, blah. Just, I don't want to hear about it. You sit on, you sit one seat off the center in an arena and everything mixed mono is on the left side. Okay, everybody knows this. We don't want to admit it, but everybody knows. It. So the deal is that if you want this, the vocal or some center image to stay in the center, you need a center channel. That's why you have a dialogue channel, but you have to now not go and put everything in all three channels where you can sort of put a lot of things in left and right but when you start putting them in left center and right now you got a problem because they are going to have all sorts of fights the correlated comb filter fights that we all know about that, you, that my life's work is is you know screaming and putting up flags about this subject so there's once you go to this you're going to you've crossed the line and now you need to take a decorrelation approach and that is I got to put different things in the center than I got than I put in left and right and if I'm going to take that approach that center channel has to reach all the seats if it's going to carry the big voice the big star the the lead of the show if it's going to be theatrical, it's going to carry the, the vocal content of the show. It can't just be a 90-degree speaker that covers one half of the room, which you can get away with on your left and on your right. So now you have a pretty hard and fast rule that if you're going to make a channel as a standalone to cover the whole room, it has to, A, cover the whole room. And that is the key thing. Once you've crossed the three, and you now you've got left, center, and right. Well, now the the crossing over to adding surrounds and on your sides and on your rears and on your overhead, those are just more versions that follow a similar set of guidelines. Yeah, Bob and I joke a lot about, you know, okay, you've spent all of your career separating coverage and making sure that everything is, you know, separate but equal. And now we're doing the exact opposite and just overlapping everything. And people are like, well, what about the comb filter? And then that's where this the processors are doing all of the magic. And yeah, so on your question, is this a fad? I think it's a tool. It's not the right tool for everything. It's not the right tool for every situation. And for the exact reasons that you laid out, cost sometimes is prohibitive. There are arguments from different manufacturers of why one is better than the other and how you can save money. Some people say you can have a smaller line array. Some people say you have, you know, your, since your headroom is spread out amongst your five across the front or whatever, you can use smaller speakers because you're distributing that through multiple loudspeakers. And there is snake oil in the industry. I mean, audio, is, as a mentor once told me, audio is a series of compromises and snake oil salesmen. And you have to figure <laughs> out what is true and what isn't. 
And there's a lot of snake oil in our industry from the, you know, the gold platinum cables of power to, you know, all sorts of other things. And uh, marketing is a thing. People are trying to sell speakers with this. And I don't think they're honest if they aren't trying to do that. But with immersive audio systems, what we did with SpaceMap Go is this is a technology that's been around for almost 20, 25 years and what we said with SpaceMap Go was, okay, let's just make it free. So it's a free update to your Galaxy. And where we get in system design, where we get really, what's really happened from a marketing perspective is these new up and coming immersive systems require you to have a lot of fixed loudspeaker locations. And they say you must have five across the front. You could have seven across the front. You can have this many on the sides. You can have this many above you. Dolby for you know has a spec on how to design sound systems for cinema. And so people are used to these rules and that they're like the static, I have to do this and I have to have this many speakers in order for this to work. All right, let me, let and, me pause you, Josh, because we're about to bust some myths. So let me introduce the myth, which is something that I believed until a couple of months ago, which is that immersive meant five times the expense and five times the complexity. Because you take your normal mono system and then we're going to upgrade to immersive, then you just everything gets multiplied by five. And that makes it really easy for me to ignore and say, oh, this is a fad because no one can actually su support this kind of expense and complexity. We can barely get mono and stereo systems right. How can we do this? And so you have been a big proponent of pointing out to people how flexible this is and it's a container for new system locations and system designs and not rules. Okay, so continue. Yeah, not <laughs> rules. We don't like, you know, the only rules that we like are physics. I mean, and those physics rules still apply. Pick the right speaker, put it in the right place, and point it in the right direction. Now, that's different for mixed mono and stereo systems than what it is for, for immersive systems. Those are the only three rules. Pick the right speaker, put it in the right place, point it in the right direction. Now... We at Meyer Sound and SpaceMap Go has a lot more flexibility in terms of what you can make an immersive system. Because our algorithm, and we can get into the weeds about this, but the SpaceMap algorithm and what a SpaceMap is, is a custom panner, basically. So you can make a SpaceMap system out of one speaker, and that's a panner that you make. And the difference between SpaceMap and what everyone else is doing is that we allow you to make the panner. So let's say you have a theater and you spend a ton of money on a five across the front system on the sides and around you. Like you have a full 360 degree shell of loudspeakers. Where most of these immersive systems are failing is they, they only let you drive that system one way. So if I use their GUI in my object panner and I move that object of my guitar to the top left corner of that panner, it's only going to come out of the top left side of the sound system. The difference between that and space map is that we can say, draw the space map to control the loudspeakers however you want. 
So it's like having a Ferrari and driving it like a Prius because you spent all this money on loudspeakers, but then you're only allowed to move sound around in very certain ways. Whereas if I can draw a space map for that room and have a sound zigzag and zip around every other loudspeaker, send to all loudspeakers, send to just the vertical and then crossfade down to the sides, you can do some incredible things with the space map technology because space maps are abstractions of loudspeaker layouts that you draw. So instead of having one fixed location, you can draw the space map to be whatever you want it to be, which is very different than what, you know, what this is. But ultimately the technology that all of these companies are using including us, they're big crosspoint matrices and they're they're using either level delay and delay or just level and they're also or using level and delay together or just delay and then there's all sorts of other algorithms that people do and do not tell you about most companies don't show you what's going on behind the hood whereas you can see the matrix values in galaxy while this is happening to see what math is actually going on so yeah this is something we can get into but we can make a space map system an immersive system out of three speakers. Put them in a triangle. And if you're in the middle of that, and those speakers can be on sticks, you can pan sound around those three speakers. It's like a sandbox of system design compared to... And and the reason for that is very particular because when Space Map first got started, it was designed uh, in a geodesic dome back in 1979. Steve Ellison was in Australia and he had to work on an Apple II computer. There were speakers all along this geodesic dome and he had to figure out a way to mathematically move a sound around to each one of these speakers. And it was inspired by the geodesic dome. And then the next you know, a couple years later, him and Jonathan Dean started a company called Level Control Systems. And the first show that the technology got deployed on was for an arena touring show called the George Lucas Summer Spectacular. Okay. So there was over <laughs> adventure. Yeah. And so there was over 15,000 people in the audience for the first show that they deployed this technology oh on. That was like in the 80s, like 80, early 80s. And so since then, what we've done is like worked with sound designers really in theater and big spectacles and started adding to these tool set that's needed i mean again audio is a series of compromises and live sound what we do as live sound practitioners is incredibly difficult and so we need to have a system that is flexible enough to overcome the challenges that we face on a day-to-day basis oh, I can't put my speaker there because there's a wall. Okay, well, just draw a virtual node in space map and you know, make a, a, a virtual speaker there. So all of these tools that have been added to the space map over the years have really evolved with the mi- mindset of it's a live sound tool, it needs to be flexible and scalable and easy to deploy. What we didn't do <laughs> for years and years and years was make it easy and accessible to use. It was very expensive. And some of the new immersive processors out there from other our competition and companies are incredibly expensive. And they require you to have two and they almost handcuff you. And then you, so you buy this Ferrari's worth of loudspeakers for your room and you buy this processor and then you can only drive it like a Prius because they, you know, make you only be able to move sound in the way that the room looks. Josh, you're getting um, all worked up. I know, I know. It's it's just frustrating because the rules, it's a marketing thing that these the companies are saying. These and companies. What, these companies. Ah. But no. Oh, but, but yeah, yeah I, like I, what's I, cool I about the galaxy is we can... It's just marketing. 
you want to make something that people can reliably make work. So you put some guardrails yeah. on it, and you you know what their approach is is to make a thing that shoots down the sort of down the middle of the of the road, and it would work in the in the middle of the road applications, and it would be repeatable, and it stays in this safe kind of repeatable thing. Yeah. What we have done, because it goes back to the start of this creative place, is to make a non-guardrail version, but it comes in a kit form that you have to assemble yourself. So you have to say, okay, here it is. There's this pile of stuff on the floor. It's like a bunch of Legos. You can build it into anything, but you have to build it. And you have to make the, you have to conceive of the sound design. So it's not something that you just, it just pops up into your brain. And as yeah. far as, you know, that one size fits all sort of mentality, now that runs into realities such as the shape of the physical room of where you can put speakers. So if you make it so that it's always just, you know, if you, you make it so that it's just for a standard arena shape, okay, there you go. But, but we have taken a thing that is ready to go in whatever shape, that you do what you're whatever you're in my first one was in a literal planetarium it was under the sea the little mermaid and we had we had speakers around the circle 360 degrees of laterals and we had speakers in the center and speakers up in the dome and the mermaid flew up and down well swam up and down and the the sound image came up with her as you turn on the lower speakers or the upper speakers and the characters all ran and swam around the dome. You could image to, to, the, to these things, and it was this was in 2001 at Tokyo Disney Sea, and we we literally built that thing for that place, and that's that's that those trajectories are only for that application. So it's not universal. It's a it's a custom fit. But so I I don't want to take the approach of really of talking about or disparaging other platforms. My thing is that we have a we have a platform that can make a five channel with laterals and things. It can also make six channels or four channels or two mains and 19 surrounds or whatever it is. Is, is this is this we're ready to go. Give me an application. I'll bet we can do what you're looking for. That's what I have to say. Is I'll bet you. I'll bet we can do it. It just might, you know, might take a little time, but we can we can build something to that shape. Yeah, and we yeah. So we can do the we can full make the you know shape the play-doh however we need to. If we need to make it look like the room, the panner to behave the way all of these other panners behave, then we can do that. But that's just a fraction of what a space map can do. And it's really a creative imagination. The other day, we had a, someone come up to us and talk about a need for an escape room and a maze to sort of guide people along. Uh, you know, it's a very intricate move, you know, zippering around type of room with loudspeakers everywhere. But the way you would do that with most panners is very difficult. Well, with space maps, since they're abstractions, we drew the layout as it would look with the loud, loudspeaker nodes, but then we used what are called virtual nodes, and we just made a linear fader. So as you dragged your finger across the bottom of the space map, it activated the speakers in a linear order that you want the user, as they're walking around that room, to experience. 
so abstr this abstraction is really cool because you can you can move beyond just the plan view 2D representation of the loudspeakers that that these other products have. You could do that. It's still fine and it's totally useful, especially when you're first grasping what how to deal with immersive systems. But then you can do things like I want this sound to play out of the speaker in front and then a speaker completely behind me and then above me and then zigzag. And you can make these really fun space maps. And I have one that's called a randomizer that I show in some of our, our work. And the randomizer was designed to emulate crowd noise in a stadium during the pandemic. And what it does is it just randomly sends level to about 60 loudspeaker locations and allows it energizes, it adds random level changes to an existing uh, room. In this case, we used it for to represent, you know, stadium audience sound with a mono signal. With a mono signal, um, we made it sound like it was all surrounding you coming from everywhere. That was 100,000 people, yeah. yeah. That's cool. Now, I wanted to address and, for one moment this, this, um, this, can I use smaller arrays if I use more of them? And the answer is yes. I mean, think about Think about that. If you want to know an object lesson of that, consider the Fender Twin Reverb. Fender <laughs> Twin Reverb has only one thing. It reproduces the guitar, and it can ruin the experience for everybody because it's so friggin' loud. <laughs> okay? So how does that one, you know, just two 12-inch speakers uh, can outdo our whole giant $100,000 PA? because it's object device that's only streaming one single channel and we are reproducing, you know, 32 channels or something, okay? So if you go to five mains and you partition your band into, into fifths, well, okay. Now, you know, each of those can have, has, had, has headroom available because of the decreased complexity and density of, of the waveforms that they're being, that they're reproducing. And I can tell you from the experience going back to 1974, 1973, listening to the Grateful Dead's Wall of Sound, which is a truly a object-based sound system, each, you know, each instrument was separately, had separate columns of speakers. And if you know, if you put them all together, it would have been a big giant blur. But as separate events blended and mixed now in the air instead of mixed in the wire, there you go. Um, and so now you have the ability to spatialize, and you can you can still fill the same amount of acoustic energy into the space. But of course, when you scale the thing and get too big and get too far apart, now you've started to offset. Time and you have a band when you when you put the guitar that's that's a hundred milliseconds away from the piano. Now you're starting to get the experience of listening to the marching band at halftime at the football game, which let's face it, is not tight. The marching band is <laughs> yeah. not tight, not in my seat. <laughs> and that's you know so so the thing about scale is that time doesn't scale. So you, you get this thing overly large, you get it into stadiums and things. Time doesn't, doesn't go proportional. It goes in milliseconds. And hello, 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 hello. It's a real issue issue. Yeah, I was watching something with Robert Scovel actually talking about when he first did Rush and Quadraphonic, and he tried moving Neil Peart's drum kit around the room in the arena, and 
he said Neil stopped, Neil Fert stopped, and Robert will have to tell you the story, but he it's he said he stopped and was like, What is that? And it was the propagation of time of the symbols or whatever going back to the arena. And of course he said that Neil Pert was good enough to where he'd figured out the time offset and adjust his drumming to match what was happening back <laughs> on the, coming back from the other side of the arena, which is amazing. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Bob. I think that speaks to my question of, isn't this just a 5X in expense or is it more just like redistributing complexity and expense? And so so maybe there's some examples that each of you could share because I think the application for sound design when it comes to theater and circus events is really clear. The sound designer says, I want this, this, and this to happen or it's in the script, it says this happens and the sound moves around. But have you seen successful applications? Are there interesting applications for concert, corporate, um, some of these other places that a lot of us work in and might be wondering, is there an application that I should know about as an option for me, a sound designer, system designer? And have you guys seen that? Could it be a tool in those environments? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Ones that we just did the AES Nashville event, and that was a spring training event, and one of the experiments that I personally wanted to perform was take someone who's worked in stereo most of their life and just give them as minimal training as possible and put them in front of a fully immersive system and see how easy it is for them to work. And so we hired Pooch (laughs) and we invited Pooch to come in and work on it. And we did five across the front. There's also existing line arrays. So we tied into those as well. We did a full surround system only running on two galaxies. So really processing wise, it was two galaxies worth of outputs, 32 outputs, I think, and speakers. And that experiment seemed to work pretty well. Uh, what, What Pooch found was he had to reduce his dynamics, the amount of dynamics and compression he was putting on things. He had to use less EQ and he could space things out the way he wanted. One thing that also came from that was Instead of using five across the front, we found ourselves wanting a little more width on the outside of the stage. And so we could easily have done a left, center, right, and then had two sort of mid hangs to really bring out the width of the image. To understand how all of these systems work, let's talk about what we've done in stereo, which is we've had inputs. Those inputs have gone into something like a console. And then out of the console, we've always had either one or two channels, stereo or mono or mixed mono. And those have been then distributed to loudspeakers, amplifiers, whatever, across the stage. Now, with immersive systems, what's happening is you have your inputs, they go into a console still, but then out of the console, instead of having one channel or two channels, you now have 32 channels, sometimes 96 channels, uh, worth of outputs, whether it's buses, you decide, auxes, buses, whatever. And so all of those new channels can be sent different things. So you now have 32 pipes that are going into the loudspeakers. And so there's 32 separate pathways in the instance of SpaceMap Go. So my drum kit could be on three channels. Maybe my kick snare is one. Maybe my overheads are a stereo channel. And now I can move my drum kit around in a group of things. While that sound is moving around those pipes, what's happening is these immersive processors are adjusting a level of a matrix row. And sometimes they're adjusting delay of a matrix row as well. That's what's called crossfading delay. 
And so that's sort of a basics of how immersive audio works. And then everyone's got their marketing term and secret sauce of, you know, what math they're using for how to do it. You'll hear terms like DBAP, VBAP, Wavefield synthesis. We're using Space Map, which is manifold-based amplitude panning and baryocentric panning. And uh, Manif- but yeah, manifold-based. Yeah. yeah, a manifold is a map, and you can actually look this up. There's a white paper, AES white paper on it called uh, MEAP, uh, Manifold-Based Amplitude Panning. So if you think about what a space map is, Bob, it's a map of the room. A manifold is a technically a map, and the math that goes behind that is all there. So that's all of that is to say that I think the expense of this is really in the processor, and the expense of this then carries over to other things. You ha- you're now dealing with element per output. So in a system that has amplifiers, in, not in their speakers, you then have to have a lot more speaker cable, which is way more expensive than XLR, up into you know each line array. Well, you have to have or, separate. Or whatever. You have to have separate channels. So you know, if you want to go, if you if you're doing side surrounds that are six surrounds going along the wall. If it's cinema style, uh, the old school, that's that can be run off of three speakers per output. You can run on two channels, a one yeah. one two channel amplifier. But if you're going to do a full immersive, you've got six channels. It's going to take you three times as many amplifiers. It's yeah. And there's no jumpering so, of of speakers and you know cables to the next thing. So it's 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 all home runs. It's all individual channels. If there's a if it's a two way, there's a uh, now there's a crossover involved. There's you know all of those things. It all adds up. So you know you're you're you're, you're you want to go and you want to make things move all around. It's going to cost you channels to do it. You have to you have to have a discrete yeah. audio location. Yeah. And there's this other concept in immersive audio that Bob and I talk about a lot is granular movement versus sort of more wider movement. And the way to think about this, let's say you have four speakers and you put those four speakers in each corner of the room you're at. If I want a sound to move around, it will move around. But depending on how far my speakers are spread apart, how close they are together, my ear brain mechanism and my internal FFT transfer functions that are happening will determine where that sound is. And we have some fudge factor, you know, they call it the audiologists call it the cone of confusion, which is like (laughs) right after you're like 180 degrees, your peripheral vision, it's about 15 degrees. You can locate one degree in front of you, but then it starts going like 15 degrees. And then behind you, it's a little bit, we as mammals basically visually can really locate on the horizontal. But anyway, that's the sidebar. But you move it around. You have four speakers, you move it around. Now, let's add three speakers on each side. That is more granular. And if I move a sound around, I have more, you know, I can locate a lot easier to where that sound is coming from. Yeah, it seems like you're going from coarse to fine. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. coarse to fine grain. I kind of look at it as, you know, do you have hours on the clock? Do you have minutes on the clock? Or do you just have the cardinal directions? Is it just east, north, south, west, that sort of thing? You look at your basic old school cinema surrounds, your 5.1, that's just the cardinal directions. Um, It's, you know, there's left surround, right surround, rear surround. So it's north, south, west, and then there's the front, which is three channels. 
So the front is more granular, but the sides are not. Whereas, you know, as you break into more discrete channels, you increase the granularity and your ability to to move and locate things individually and to have a separation. I think it's a really important thing to consider just from a creative point of view. What are we trying to do? Because that was what originally was uh, Nathan's question here is what's the what's the real in order for this not to just be a fad, what's the what's the creative drive behind this? And yeah. so one thing is the ability to place audio content in locations. And those can be static. So you can separate out and you can do five mains across the front and you can separate out the band. You can hear a bluegrass band and you can hear them all separated then and then mixed and blended in the room, very much like a magnified version of what you would experience if you were standing there with those musicians in your living room. That's like a enhanced thing. realism. Right. But I don't need yeah. I don't need that mandolin player to be running around into the ceiling. That's not really part <laughs> right. of the, the creative event. Okay. But so there's moving there, there's moving things and then there's static separation. In the left and right is not enough because we end up with that perpetual problem of as soon as you're off the center everybody pans things in their brain differently so uh, the panning things are just are just for somebody that's exactly on the center and everybody else is governed by the physics of your binaural listening system and it's never going to be solved no matter how much somebody tells you they've solved it so then when it comes to motion there's a whole lot of stuff and but you're getting into you know creative content and special effects now, there can be things that are like in theme parks, like uh, stunt shows or uh, animation, like uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, an animation where it's basically this gigantic projection screen in front of you that's 360 degrees. There's a full planetarium dome that you're in, in your little boat that you're in. Well, you can place the sound image all along that dome, and there's video that is flying across. You can make that movement of the cannonball uh, coming. All that fantastic usage of this medium to make motion link up to video. Now you, you know, were asking like, is, is this all just a fad? I'm, I've concluded in terms of the five times expense, it's video that's the fad. And once video is done, people are tired of it. They're gonna give all that money that video people normally had to us and then we can do our five times stuff. All I right. think that's pretty realistic, don't yes. you? Yeah. Okay. But, um, <laughs> the dream. But back to back to seriously, you know, you you have this capability to move things. Now, what are you going to do with that? You have to have something that makes sense. If, if you're if you're doing a classical music concert, moving things is stupid, but spreading <laughs> them out is fantastic. Because yeah. when you yeah. listen to a real symphony, it doesn't have it to be where all of the the violins all come together with the oboes. It's, it's, it's not that way. They are coming from separate locations. So it's a beautiful thing to hear that. I can tell you one of my most um, really, truly exciting immersive experiences, I'm talking full goosebump experience, was at Natasha and Pierre and the Comet of 1812, which is a theater production 
running on Broadway that was had 10 sound systems distributed through the room, each of them capable of covering the whole room. And the actors would come out not only from the stage, they would actually have parts where they were on the balcony and singing to you from the balcony. Well, there's this great wedding scene and everybody is, the whole cast of 36, whatever, is spread out over the room and then they sing this song together and it's this very gospel kind of chant thing. And it's coming out of all 10 sound systems, but it's a choral blend that's not all down into left and right or down into one tube. It's literally blended in the room, which is what you get when you stand in a church with a choir. And it was just like, head blown. It's like that's through a sound system. That's that's the thing is this using the ability to mix in the space because it's a totally different experience mixing in a wire than mixing in the air. That's the that's the yeah. beauty of immersion. But you have to be able to pull it off and have the things scale right. If that as a choral blend with a long sustains, it's a beautiful thing. If they try to if the same thing they tried to do was do a super tight, intelligible hip hop. Hamilton rap coming from 10 sound systems spread out over the room. What do you say? What do you say? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I So about the corporate and then the church, you mentioned as two examples for why this tool could be important. I think corporate is very, it's very useful. We, we have a couple, the Audi Experience Center, I think, is one that just opened up, sound art museums. But let's think about these corporate, like, car shows. That's a great place for this. When you have your CEO that's about to walk out and they need a spectacle of sound and movement and stuff, that's great. But when they start speaking, we need them all to focus on our presenter. I mean, let's say you're doing a big you know, presentation of a product and your CEO is on a microphone and is walking around a system. Well, you could put them on a tracker and have them walk around. How much, how distracting that is depends on how you feel about it. I find it extremely distracting sometimes when the sound is moving as the person's walking around, but it's totally possible. But if there's a band on stage, we can spread the band out and make them, you know, sound like where they're coming from and be very realistic uh, and add just depth to the feeling. Corporate, that's one way. And the same sort of rules apply for churches. It helps out with houses of worship to really bring in the focus to the pastor, wherever the pastor is. And then during worship, during service, spreading out that music and spreading out where the choir is and where the drummer is and where the bass player is, is really just helps immerse. And then on the other side of that, with things like Space Map, if you have a couple lateral speakers that are out into the room, you can then goose in some reverb from your console there. And now you're enveloping and using the reverb on the outer and the dry on the inner. And you can really start mixing the room as a room. And that's the thing. We've been putting things down this one or two very large pipes for so long. And those pipes are great. Uh, stereo systems are great. Uh, and mono systems are, are even better in, in most live sound applications. But those pipes can only be so big. And what we've done is, what our whole careers as mix engineers has been is carving out space in the, the only minimal frequency spectrum that we have for every single instrument. 
And so what, what's cool about this is you don't have to do that as much because now you have 32 pipes instead of, you know, two pipes. And now you can sculpt just by separating the pathway into the loudspeakers. Cool. And that's the most important thing is you're no longer frequency masking. What you're doing is overlapping your speakers and separating your signals. Mm-hmm. Cool. It's mixing so. in, the, in the air. But, you know, as far as the, when you look about, one thing I just want to mention about the houses of worship and things is we need to talk to um, architects. Because when you make that, they love that fan shape, that super wide fan shaped room, and then they close the volume down with a fairly low ceiling. And those two things, then you want an immersive experience. Well, how are you going to do that? It's It's a shape that really defies immersion. Because you have a, you know, your audience spread across this super wide thing. You've got 160 degrees of audience. And to get from the, the far left all the way and reach the far right, you've got to go across the whole middle. It's a, it's a real difficult thing. And so, so you have to be realistic and calibrate your expectations. Balconies, those create uh, a real thing. And then there's the other really important thing is, let's say, okay, you want it, you, they say you've got the budget for five mains, except that here's this one little proviso. They have to have clear sight lines. You used to be able to have your left and right down nice and sweet in the right place in the room. Now you're going to have five mains all just at the same height as, as, as you would a center cluster, which has to be so, you know, so that the people on the third balcony don't, you know, have their... Block sight lines, yeah. Right. And so now everybody is, is 100 feet tall. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like... And that is, to me, that's a trade-off that is really... You have a, you have a hard time selling me that that is a good trade-off. Because to, you're so disconnected from the show, you can't beat the physics that you're late. You are to the floor where your your all your prime seats are the sound system is arriving tomorrow with today's newspaper <laughs> well that's a great transition and uh, maybe we can look at gabriel figueroa's question and his question is a little bit long there but basically he's working in a church and he's wondering is this an opportunity for immersive? He says, right now there's only two arrays and a couple of side fills and some balcony fills, no delays or proper center coverage. So I'm looking at the differences between a new correctly deployed system versus immersive for our next PA. Now I should point out that that he, he doesn't mean, <laughs> immersive also has to be correctly deployed, but I actually have some pictures of his space and I can send them to you if you want, if that would be helpful for you to talk about this. But the important thing that you just mentioned is that the ceilings get lower and lower as you get to the back. And so to me, that seems like that's probably not going to work for them, or at least not for these people in the back if they don't have a good space to consider immersive. Right. When you have a when you have a low ceiling in the back, you have to take a an inverted delay approach. So you basically have a little a little speaker on the back that does a non-granular approach, the more traditional surround approach in the back, and then you know maybe you know six rows forward, you mount a larger speaker that's high enough to make a granular surround to cover. The, the main part of the room. I, I'd have to look at the exact physics of the room, but mm-hmm. but essentially, those get linked together by space map as um, as derived nodes, as linked 
signal so that you, you could pan the signal around and it would light up in a granular approach the, the big surrounds and then the ones that are on the outside perimeter, those light up as groups. So they perform a non you know, just sort of an overall rear, whereas people in the center. I did a, a church design recently. It's a fan-shaped church that has, it's a very popular shape. It's a, it's a fan shape, and then it has, uh, it's a flat, fairly flat floor, but it has these ramps on the side that go up. So you could, okay, so the ramps go up, so, and then it then it's a balcony over, over the 160 degrees, okay? So there you go. So you, what you're left with is the ability, there's the dog, the, so you're left with the ability to do a full granular surround on the floor center and then a, and a non-granular, a cardinal directions on the upper balcony and on the ramps going on the side. There's no, you're forced by the physics, uh, you'd have to kill people all in the rear to get that to fire all the way to the front and it's not sure. worth it. It's, it's, it's not even. Complaints always are the, that, that's going to stop your surround fantasies. So Gabriel, I think you should definitely take a look at, there are three recent videos on the Meyer Sound YouTube channel about system design with Josh and Bob going through some of this stuff. And that should answer some of your questions because as Bob's talking about here, you'll see that all of the sources need to cover all of the audience. And if they can't, and they have blocked sight lines, as is the case with your people going deep under that, that balcony and the ceiling getting lower, then there's going to be need to be some reinforcement somehow. And so, as you'll see in these videos with Josh and Bob, they explain how you solve all these problems. But it, it does start to generate some complexity as you have blocked sight lines and portions of the audience that are not visible to you know all sources. Yeah. One, th one thing that the church market, uh, under balconies are another big thing, but there are tools to deal with with these systems built in the uh, most immersive sound systems. I agree that I feel like the five across the front in a fan-shaped room almost is a, is a marketing dream, especially on those extreme sides. But there's a way to do it in space map to have a left, center, right across each section of seating and then control each section as a left, center, right together from a front of house perspective. Or even just stereo systems, but not stereo in the traditional way, stereo to where the left and the right of both sec that's covering one section of that fan is overlapped. The one cool thing about this is like, let's say you do have a smaller budget, something like a Galaxy, you have 16 available outputs. So if you did a traditional PA up front, like you normally would, and then you did for your Christmas Spectacular production, you brought in a couple extra loudspeakers. Well, if you have extra outputs on your Galaxy, then just plug those XLR into those speakers, and now you can use those and send some sound for your special Christmas spectacular sound effects around, as well as still maintain you know the mix that you're using. So yeah, there's tons of options. It really depends on back to this, you know, coarse versus granular. What do you want to do? What is the goal and the intent of the sound system? Okay, so so let's get into some of these and let's just see how far we can get. And then maybe we'll even come back to some of my questions. <laughs> but uh, people were so nice to send in questions that I want to make sure we get to those. So Robert Scoville, I asked him, what do you want me to ask them about, about their system? And he said, in Galaxy, when it is used in immersive systems considered a spatializer by a given definition, and he doesn't give the definition, so I'm hoping someone can say something about what a spatializer is. He says, I know Meyer are incorporating delay matrix 
mixing within the unit to achieve the spatial aspects of their Space Mac Go application, but I'm curious if units like Astro Spatial and Lisa, Tmax, etc., are functionally or mathematically different than what Galaxy has to offer. Hey, Robert. The first question, I hope you're doing well. First question, Spatializer. Space Map Go and the Galaxy itself is a loudspeaker processor. So the cool thing is the Galaxy will still tune your PA and do all of the things that Galaxy has done for years now. With the free update to Space Map Go, you can now use uh, level changes to, and it is, I guess, I don't know what the definition of Spatializer would be, but it is an immersive audio platform like all of these others, in addition to be a loudspeaker processor. And we're not using delay. Galaxy does have a delay matrix, and you can set static delay times on a queue basis or snapshot basis. But we're using level-based panning, very similar to what you know all these other companies are doing. And... The difference between the three companies that you mentioned is, yes, their math is different. They're not talking about what math they're using. And Timax is delay-based. Elisa, I believe, is uh, only level-based with a little bit of delay. And then um, Astral Spatial, I don't know enough about to really... I think it's, uh, it does both. I think it does delay and uh, level-based. But there's ways around it. I'm working on a project right now that is going to be using a sort of static crossfade delay matrix to move someone from an A stage to a B stage. So as they move, the delay times changes and steps um, for the outputs. But Spacemap Go is level-based. It's not controlling the delay matrix of a galaxy. You can still control it with Compass. I hope that answered that. I can't comment on the astral spatial because I got Pfizer. (laughs) (laughs) okay robert says secondly ask him how meyer defines an object is it a speaker output or an input source to the spatializing device oh yes so an object in general terms represents a channel so if i have an output or a bus from my console and that feeds that's plugged into a galaxy so i have an xlr from my console and that xlr cable plugs into the input of a galaxy Um, whether it's It's an input. So an object is that input. So then that object moves around the space map. And the space map is the custom panner that you design. So if I have 30 loudspeakers, I can have a space map that has all 30 in it, or or I can have a space map that just has four of those 30 loudspeakers in it. And you draw the space map. Then on top of that, we have what are called trajectories. And trajectories are pathways that you draw and they control the objects automatically. So you can have tap tempo. So if I wanna move a trajectory around at a certain BPM, let's say I want a sound of my drum kit to go side to side at, you know, my cymbals need to move in time with the music. I just tap in that tempo and then there we go. It's moving left and right. And you can draw them to be as complex or as fun as you want. For example, I show an example all of the time called Soundosaurus Rex. And my wife basically just drew a a T-Rex that is a trajectory. (laughs) And I can load that on a channel and it controls the object and moves that sound around whatever it is in the shape of a T-Rex. And since it's on an iPad, you can expand it, contract it, and this all happens in real time. That's one thing that no one else can do in the industry right now that makes SpaceMap really, really fun. So that's an object. Object is an input. Okay, so Alish Stefancic has this question that I think will need a little bit of unraveling because I think it expresses some 
assumptions, but I think it's good to get into because it's probably some assumptions that a lot of people have. So uh, most people are familiar with this phenomenon that as you move farther away from a speaker, that its coverage seems to get wider unless you have an asymmetrical horn. So I think this is his sort of thinking where he asks this question. He says, I'm wondering how far into the audience the immersive experience can be achieved before all those separated signals become combined and does that then cause cancellations in the back of the room? Now, right away, we've already talked in this conversation about how a little bit about the system design that we actually want all of our sources to be covering the entire audience. So I think he's thinking that we actually want them to be all separate signals. So Josh or Bob, do you want to try to speak to this question a little bit? Well, of course, a speaker from an angular point of view stays constant over distance, but as a width in terms of in meters or feet or whatever, it, it's getting wider. And that's that's the, the simple physics of it. So so when you're too close in, um, you're going to find yourself that you're simply are prohibitively uh, close to something because the inverse square law is going to prevent you from you're just too close. If you get up on a ladder and stand next to the side surround, yeah, it's you're not going to have an immersive experience. But so what we do is we define the room sort of from a design point of view. We have this thing called the go zone, and that gives you a fairly good guideline of to where you're going to have a 100% immersive experiences inside of that go zone. And then from there, you, you it's a gray it's a gray progression out of full immersion. It doesn't, there isn't a place where it suddenly just locks in and you have it. As you get closer to the perimeters, you're, you're necessarily getting closer to that, uh, those laterals or, or, uh, and, and farther away from the others. And you simply, the physics are, are going to catch up with you eventually. So the signals themselves, you know, the more that a signal is individuated, the more you will have everybody be able to, if they were all blindfolded, would, it, would point to the sound source. Where is the frog coming from? And everybody would point in the same direction to, to the frog direction where you've placed it in the space map. And that's the key thing, is, is are people consistently showing you, experiencing the same localization content? And if you then map the things out so that you have immersed them into a swamp full of frogs and cicadas and all these things around them, then everybody could point to this and that, that the locations. And that's, that's really the goal. And the more that you are towards the center, the more sure that experience is going to be. Yeah. And I would also say one thing that people get wrapped up on is like, okay, well, what do I do about fills? What do I do about all my subsystems? And, you know, five across the front in a lot of rooms won't cover the whole entire room, regardless of how pretty it looks in a prediction software. And the subsystems are still real. So if I am sitting underneath a line array and for whatever reason, my five across the front are very high up, I could maybe have two front fills in front of me and do, using what are called derived nodes, do a stereo mix down of what's happening up above me. One thing that I use derived nodes for a lot is, let's say for whatever reason you can't have your console in the room 
So what you could do is set up a stick of, you know, five a 5.1 surround system in the booth where your mix console is, and then that uses derived nodes. And so whatever happens out in the room translates and mixes down to a 5.1 mix for your room. We do that with under balconies as well. And so you'll have this sort of main system that is covering as much of the room as possible, but then you'll have these subsystems that are doing immersive mix downs, whether it's down to mono, stereo, or whatever. And a lot of time that's very helpful for, especially when these these speakers have to get hung so high across the proscenium. Front fills become really important for imaging, just imaging that voice down. Sure. I'm, I'm going to just, I'm just going to mention though, is this that you can't get stupid about these things, okay? Front fills <laughs> are only going to cover two rows and about five people wide, right? So they are not yeah. part of your spatialization system. You're not going to be zinging things around in the front fills and have everybody go, wow, look at it moving across <laughs> the front. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen in your under-balcony speakers because if the under-balcony speakers are designed correctly at all, they are designed for correlated signal for a minimal overlap because their job is to bring up intelligibility. They have a very clear mission. Do not go and start screwing with playing. I, I, one of the places I really throw up a big red flag is people wanting to play Matrix games with the Matrix delays and silliness under balconies oh, yeah. and in front fields. It's like, stop it, stop it, stop it. <laughs> just, those things yeah. are combat audio you must make them simple and intelligible let them do their job and don't screw them up yeah and now with this 32 pathways what's cool is you can that speaker now becomes a multi-use tool it could be that delay doing correlated signal for the mains but it can also be used in a separate pathway for you know some version of that of a mix sense. down right. um, it can become an overhead you know and, and suddenly people are looking up because it's now it's not merging with what's coming from the front. It's suddenly all by itself is a Peter Pan over your head saying, hey, look at me. <laughs> yeah. And so under balconies, of course, and above upper balconies, you're going to have less of a granular immersive experience, but you can still design a system to have an immersive experience. Okay, cool. Let's get to Robert McGarrity's question. He says, total novice for immersive programming, where do you delay to? Is there a zero point? And just for some context, I think uh, I'm going to make an assumption here about what Robert's talking about. I think he's thinking of a practice in theater where we might have a center point on stage in theater where we want our voices to sonic image source back to, or we may have a concert sound stage where we want where we kind of time back to the drums i think that's kind of what he's thinking of so yeah and and as i'm learning more from you both about immersive systems i'm thinking that it's actually this question is actually not applicable to this but yeah what do you have to say about where is the zero point well they if if you had a it's a the same would be if that was a left right system or if it was five systems across if you want to make it timed to the events on stage and you don't already have enough delay because you've got a digital console and a digital this and a digital that you've already stacked up your latency so if you're going to actually add a little bit more then sure drum kit is a is a usable place 
or um, if it's theatrical, you can go to a point on stage. But those become essentially, in our world, that's a static event, or it can be set up through the matrix, uh, through the delay matrix, as a set of presets if you wanted to make it so that it, you had a, a moment where an actor was downstage, left for some dramatic moment, you could have a separate delay matrix timing for that. But that's a static part of the tuning process, and then the, the immersion and spatialized movement would come on, on top of that. By They really wouldn't be changed by that. Yeah, I think of it as, in immersive systems, I think of two different delay types. There's system delay, which is what we're going to need to do for time alignment of systems, whether that's main, subs, uh, mains to sub relationship, front fill relationship. That all gets handled. Uh, you can use the delay matrix on the galaxy or the outputs for each speaker on the galaxy. And then there's artistic delay. So if I have an actor moving from proscenium downstage to upstage, I can fire a snapshot that changes that input's delay time, or I could just do it on the console and have a snapshot on my console and adjust their input when they're not singing that instantly swaps their delay to a new zone. This is very typical of what we would do in musical theater, having three zones or four zones across the stage. Um, there are fancy devices that are very expensive that do that automatically for you, but with the Galaxy, it's a free update, and you can just do a snapshot change. Cool. Let's try to squeeze in two more questions here and then and then we'll start to wrap up. I don't know if you have anything to say about this, but Angela Williams says, where do you place audience mics in the room for capture as objects? I kind of don't understand the question, but let's talk about how do we capture surround information that's happening in a room. There's two different scenarios. First scenario is I have an artist, I'm making a recording, or I just want to you know, have some microphones laid out to capture the audience noise and send it back in. That could be wherever you want. And if you wanted to, you could put them on space map and then send them to all loudspeakers or, or just some loudspeakers, the laterals. You can make them an object and move that audience sound around. I think the question is, is for the analysis of the, of the object placement. That's the impression I got of that question. Yeah, it could be. I also don't totally understand it. And I'm realizing now I should have asked them to clarify a little bit, but it did make me think about mixing those in, but I don't know how you would mix those in. So yeah, do you, do you want to say something about that, Bob? If it's mixing things in, my answer is no, I don't do that. That's That's Constellation's job. And that's what you're getting into. If you want to start recirculating audience mics, ambience mics in, that's that's a whole other thing. But if it was to, in order to to analyze, you know, you place a virtual mic into, you know, or a real mic to analyze the, lo the localization, my answer would be anywhere you want. Anywhere you yeah. want to yeah. know the answer. Yeah. And there are tons of different mic styles to do that. You could do that with a binaural microphone headset. You can do that with an ambisonics microphone. You can do that with ever, if that's just for capturing right. well, the recording of what's happening in the room. And in MAP3D, we do it through the virtual sim mics. And I do that as part of the analysis. I'll go and place a mic when I'm designing a mic in MAP3D, and then I'll run the different speakers and I'll be able to see as I lay one trace over the another. It's like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm consistently seeing within 3DB all of my my laterals are all reaching within 3db in this location okay that's cool i'm i know that this has a really a really consistent spatialization there yeah. okay i wanted to get to lloyd gibson's question 
because even though we've already talked about this some at the first part of the interview, I wanted to do it again because I I would just want to make sure this is clear for there's probably other people out there who have this question and I want to give Bob a chance to maybe correct some misunderstandings about his own teaching. So Lloyd Gibson says, I thought Bob was against stereo imaging in live sound because of the psychoacoustics and delay slash magnitude discrepancies seat to seat. Does this not apply here or is there a size threshold where it can be successful? Okay. So stereo in live applications. Let's get into the semantics. There's a left main and a right main. You can call that stereo. I call that left right. Because stereo is something that happens when you put on headphones. It happens when you sit there in your living room because you're inside of the the five milliseconds that you have to play with in the world of physics of your brain and its ability to make a panoramic stereo image. There's very little of the room that is inside that five millisecond window in our world of, of PA. And you don't have to have, a, it doesn't have to be a big PA, it doesn't have to be an arena or a stadium, it's like even in a small theater. There's very little that fits inside that window. So everybody else can call it stereo all they want, but you know, I'm, I design systems, left and right systems, and I design them to have no more overlap between left and right than they have overlapping into the walls. So that's my, my thing. It's basically, you're, you know, I don't want to invite the wall into the thing any more than the virtual wall, which is the, the correlation point of where the two speakers meet in the middle, which is a model in all physical acoustics uh, modeling as, as a wall. So that's my, where I aim systems. I don't aim your left and right deeply inward unless you can promise me that you're going to put left completely separate material than in the right. Like if you've got left, center, and right, and they are now discrete and separate channels, now I'm going to turn that thing inward. Now I'm going to cover the whole room with left and the whole room with right and the whole room with center and the whole room with left center and right center and 17, whatever they are. I'm back to the, I'm the whole show. So if I'm the whole show, fine. But if, but if we are left and right and 99% of the material outside of the littlest bits are going to be, put it this way, when all the really stuff that matters, the fader uh, with the big star on it is going to be mixed center, I'm going to make your, your left and right system so that it does the best performance that it can as correlated signal. Okay, so that's my simple answer to that. I haven't changed on that. But if you go to a full multi-channel, as soon as you introduce two multi-channel, and that's what happens when you add that third one, that center, and start functioning center channel. Now, when you've gone to full multi-channel, if that's the way you want to address it, now we can go and play decorrelated. But a lot of times, what you really see in, a, in an LCR is you're going to do LR are still going to be a very LR system. Very little gets panned out but the center is its own thing. And so now you have a decorrelated center, but a semi-correlated left and right. So I hope that was the answer, or that wasn't too unclear. I thought that that was clear. Yeah, that's great. But I don't tell people how to mix. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Right, and immersive is a new way to mix. 
instead of sending things down two pipes, you now have 32 or however many channels you have. So you no longer view it as LCR and you view it as my canvas that I can put objects on. And that's really the way I have to start viewing it is I'm looking at a stage. Okay, now I'm painting where I want to put my artists or where I want to put my, my objects. Okay, Josh and Bob, thank you so much for all of your time today. And I should end by asking, where is the best place for people to go who want to learn more about SpaceMap Go and uh, immersive system design? Yeah, so uh, MeyerSound.com slash, well, MeyerSound.com is a great location for uh, all information concerning Meyer Sound. Uh, we also have the Thinking Sound YouTube channel. That's our YouTube page. We've done about six hours worth of Space Map Go content as well as Map 3D content. There's tons of information there. Like every other company, we participated in webinar wars. <laughs> and, uh, and I never heard him called we, that. Uh, that sounds so violent. <laughs> Nick, Nick. Nick from DMV called it the other day while we were hanging out, and I thought okay, it was yeah, hilarious. Sure. So shout out to Nick. But but anyway, yeah, no, we uh, webinar wars was what happened. But anyway, yeah, we, there's tons of content, not only just about immersive audio and everything. And then last resource for SpaceMap Go is the SpaceMap Go help website. That's basically the operating instructions for SpaceMap Go. And the cool thing is this is all free, so you can download Compass and download SpaceMap Go onto your iPad and mess around with it, play with it. You don't need hardware to, to start looking at what this can do. I want to just throw in one more thing. hope I don't get in trouble, but there's also some physical places where you can go to uh, experience Space Map Goes. There are some locations where there are, uh, at least at the moment that we're making this recording, operating systems. There's one here in New York. I believe there's one in, is there one still in Nashville? Nashville. Yep, at our office at Soundcheck in Nashville, and then Center Staging in Burbank. Yeah, yeah. So there's we got we got left right we have an LCR system left center and right, right there uh, for the United States, and I think there might be one in Europe. I'm not. Yeah, I think there's one in Europe, but. Yeah, all across the world, really. We have we have a touring roadshow, Space Map Go Roadshow, which is happening Space across the U.S. Map right Go now. Roadshow. When is that coming to yes. my town? <laughs> I don't know, man. I think it should be called Space Map a Go Go. Uh, yeah, it should be called Space Map a Go Go. But yeah, it's it's on. If you look at the website on our website, there's an article about it, and uh, you can reach out to sales at myersound.com to find out when it's coming to a city near you. They're thinking about doing one in Europe uh, very soon. Australia has been touring around, and New Zealand have been touring around Space Map Go systems for a while, a while now. Um, right, so you can go to Australia, except you can't go to Australia. They won't let you in. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then there's our dealers and distributor network across the world has uh, some have set up Space Map Go systems. So reach out to sales at myersound.com if you want to hear this, want to hang out, and then. Um, yeah, we're we're open to give you a demo, and the New York room is is really cool. And Bob might meet you there. So. <laughs> oh wow! Just throwing Bob's hat in there. Great, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Depending, and oh, the other thing is, uh, we will be at Infocom this year, and so there will be a Space Map Go system there that will be. We can't talk about it really too much yet, but it's going to be cool. I'm excited about it. Well, Josh and Bob, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Design Live. Sound Design. Yeah.
Sound Design Live is supported by Ellis, Learn Stage Lighting, Joel, Ross, Bob, Senqui, Roadie Free Radio, Scott, John, Voyager Sound, Dave, Kuba, DC Sound Up, Carl Hines, Nicholas, Andrew, Yusuf, Chris, Terry, EJC Audio, Stuart, Ozon, and Sven. You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $5 a month over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive. This episode features music from Mauricio Ramirez. You can find more on all major streaming services by searching for LXIV64. We shall never surrender. We shall never surrender. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing ground. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. And if I do not for a moment believe this island or large part of it, we shall never surrender. We shall never surrender. This island or large part of it was subjugated and starving in our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet. Carry on the struggle until in God's good time. We shall never surrender. We'll never surrender. The new world, with all its power and steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. We shall never surrender.